in your Bibles. Chapter 49, verse 33, we'll read that to start. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return." And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. 
So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Brothers and sisters and boys and girls, uh, we have Jacob at the end of his life, at the beginning of our passage here. We didn't read it, but he was pronouncing blessings on his family, his sons in particular. Goes through all the sons, pronounces a blessing, and as he does that, these are prophecies, they're predictions, you could say. He's looking to the future, inspired by the Spirit to do that, and he's doing that as a man of faith. Do you think it was easy for Jacob to be a man of faith with what you know of the end of his life? It was difficult. It was difficult for him. Jacob, as he ends his life, is once again in exile. He's he's in Egypt. He's not in the land of promise. He's not in Canaan. And uh, Genesis 15 helps us with this, understanding Jacob's situation Genesis 15, Abraham, the Lord had said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's now Jacob. Jacob and his family are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now it does say after that in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. They shall come back here. But it's not clear to Jacob how this is going to take place. He knows this, presumably. Aaron, Abraham, rather, has shared this with his children. So Jacob knows of Genesis 15, but, but he doesn't know what this is going to look like, and he doesn't know how it'll take place. So Jacob has to walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. He doesn't see it. But he does have faith in God, and that's based on who God is. What does Jacob say about who God is near the end of his life? Well, look with me at chapter 48, verse 15. It's important to set up our message this afternoon. Jacob blesses Joseph, and he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. That's Jacob's declaration of faith near the end of his life. The Lord is my shepherd. And God is our shepherd as well. The Lord is our shepherd. I want to remind you of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful psalm that we're going to weave in with Genesis 50. This afternoon. So the message today is called The Lord Will Provide. We're going to see that the Lord provides amid distress, the Lord provides amid doubt, and the Lord provides amid death. First, amid distress. Jacob has just died, and Joseph is heartbroken. You see the description in verse 1. He falls on his father's face, he weeps over him, 
and he kisses him. This is very distressing for Joseph. And amid that distress, God provides. The Lord, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with him through the valley of his father's death. What does he provide him? Well, first he provides him with the opportunity to fulfill his father's last wish. At the end of chapter 49, we read that Jacob says, verse 29, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Very important for Jacob, as it was for Isaac and Abraham. And so Joseph approaches Pharaoh and he makes the request, let me go into Canaan so that I may bury him. And it's the Lord who ensures that Pharaoh agrees. It's the providence of God working so that Pharaoh agrees here. Proverbs 21 says, The Lord directs the heart of kings like streams of water. He guides them wherever he pleases. And so in the providence of God, God is pleased to lead Pharaoh to agree to this. And so Jacob is embalmed. That was not a usual practice for the Hebrews. It was for the Egyptians, though. Usually the priests embalmed people and and there were a lot of rituals and spells magic kind of behind that but interesting that we are told in verse 2 Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to do this perhaps that focus on the medical part of this is to remind us that Joseph has not taken over the religious practices of the Egyptians why embalm in this case well it would be very helpful in bringing Jacob's body to its final resting place Not to dwell on this too long, but embalming removes the intestines um, and dehydrates the interior of the body. And that's the part that takes 40 days, which is mentioned here, verse 3. Then the intestines are dried out, eventually replaced in the body. And the body's washed, exterior with spiced wine, anointed with oils, wrapped in, in linen, and finally covered with resin, which is like a protective coating. So that all is to preserve Jacob's body. And now with that having been done, Jacob's body is ready to transport. And so Joseph and his brothers and his father's household all go to make this journey to the burying place, the ancestral burying place. And they're accompanied by many people from Egypt, this great host of people, chariots and horsemen, going along with the sons of Israel to Canaan. Servants and elders of Pharaoh even, right? Some of Pharaoh's group, other elders of Egypt. There's, there's this great company, we're told, there in verse 9. And what else does God provide? God provides the space to grieve. See, Joseph is deeply distressed. We, we acknowledge that at the very beginning here, over the death of his father. And this passage highlights the importance of weeping. That word was used quite a bit here. And verse 3, we're told that the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. 70 days. That's a long time. For the Israelites, normally they would take 7 to 30 days of weeping. Um, The Egyptians mourned for royalty for 70 days. So Jacob has shown a very high honor here. He's treated as royalty in his death. And if that's not enough, then there's seven more days of mourning on, on the way to Canaan. They pause along the way. We're told about that. The whole company, so grievous is their lamentation that the place they are at is renamed the Morning of Egypt. And so this is what the Lord provides for Joseph and his brothers. 
Have you experienced this provision from God? God is gracious, especially amid times of distress. God provides us with supportive people. God provides us with opportunities to fulfill last wishes. God provides us with space to grieve because he is your shepherd. He is your shepherd. And so when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in the sense of another person's death, you need not fear because the Lord, your shepherd, knows what you need. And so like a sheep is able to lie down in in green pastures because and only because it feels secure in the hands of the shepherd, so you are able to rest at peace in the hands of the Lord despite your distress. This text is not just about Jacob and Joseph, though, individuals, this family, that's it. But it's about the the people of God. See, Jacob is the patriarch of a people. And, And from these 12 sons, right now it looks like a little family, but from these 12 sons will come a great nation. Jacob is shown honor, the honor that's befitting royalty, we said. That's because he really is the head of a nation. He really is a king in that sense. Chapter 47 showed how God blessed Jacob and his family in the land of Canaan and how they were blessed by Pharaoh but also Jacob verse 7 and verse 10 of chapter 47 blessed Pharaoh Jacob blessed Pharaoh and in our church when we looked at that we saw how Jacob is the greater actually and so it's the greater blessing the lesser Um, He is the head of a nation. And so Pharaoh's provision for Jacob to be buried in his plot in Canaan points to something greater as well. It points to God's provision for his people in the promised land when they will go to the promised land. The land that he swore on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the Lord provides amid distress. But despite that, there are doubts that exist in the hearts of the brothers. You can read about this in verse 15. Look there. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You know, we all have different family experiences, family backgrounds. Sometimes when the father or the mother, the the patriarch or the matriarch of a family dies, the family cohesion is done. It just kind of falls apart. I've seen this. I've experienced this to some degree. But amid the doubts that these brothers have, God provides. The Lord, who is his people's shepherd, walks with them as they fear evil. And what does he provide them with? Comfort and assurance. Comfort and assurance. First of all, the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness. You see, the brothers here, as as they say what they say, we can see they have a hard time wrapping their heads around Joseph's forgiveness. How could Joseph forgive us? We did so much evil towards him. So they still fear fear revenge. He might hate us. What if he wants to pay us back? So they make something up to tell Joseph. That's what we see here in verse 16. In light of their fears, they decide to send this message to Joseph, saying, our father told you to forgive us. Please forgive us. And also verse 18, they say, behold, we are your servants. But what does Joseph do? Joseph forgives them. You see his disposition towards them at the end of verse 17. He wept when they spoke to him. 
In verse 19, he says to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? See, he's leaving the writing of wrongs to God. How can he do this? What strength enables Jacob to be so forgiving? To be so merciful and good toward his brothers? Well, he can do this because God has shown him goodness and mercy first. So it's as if Joseph comes to his brothers and he says, The Lord is my shepherd, brothers. And he's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, just like he was for dad. And so I want for nothing and I fear no evil. He has restored me and comforted me and I know that his goodness and his mercy are for me. And beloved, this is not just for Joseph or for his brothers, but this is the good news for us. This is the good news that we proclaim each and every week. This is what we live for. That God has shown his mercy and goodness to us in Christ Jesus. And you might wonder whether God can really love you. You may have had these doubts. Perhaps you have them now. It may be that he hates me. I've done so much that's evil. Could be he wants to pay me back. Well, if we have those thoughts, what we need to do is we need to look to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see that God focused all of his hatred against evil on himself. He paid the penalty that was due for our sins. And so in Jesus, all that is left for you and for me is the loving kindness and mercy of God. In Jesus, we could say it this way. Think of the Joseph narrative here. In Jesus, God has freed us from the prison of our sin and placed us in the seat of honor next to him. And because we have been forgiven and loved in this kind of way, we can also forgive and love others. Romans 12 helps us with this as well. Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. How can we say that? How can we nod yes and amen to Romans 12, verse 17 and 19? Well, because of what Romans 12, verse 1 reminds us. In view of the mercies of God, that's where that chapter began. In view of the mercies of God, in view of God's merciful provision for us, we can feel free to forgive others. We can feel free to let God be God, trusting that he will right all wrongs. So, The brothers receive the comfort and assurance of forgiveness. They also receive the comfort and assurance of his purposes. Joseph next speaks to the purposes of God. You see that in verse 20, a famous verse where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's God's purpose in all of this, all that's come before this? It's good. It's good. God meant it for good. Well, then why has there been so much suffering in the life of Joseph? So much brokenness in the life of this family? Well, in the providence of God, this is how it happened. What is the doctrine of the providence of God? That would be obviously a whole other sermon, but I'll just give the quotes from our, our confessions. The Heidelberg Catechism says the doctrine of providence is, is the almighty, or the providence of God, rather, is the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby nothing comes to us by chance, but only by his fatherly hand. The Belgic Confession adds, he leads and governs all things according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. How do you respond to that? 
Well, you might say, I don't like it. That means that God causes evil to happen. If Joseph were here right now, and he is in a way through the text, what would Joseph say to that? He would say, no, no, God God doesn't cause it to happen. God isn't responsible for evil. It's you that meant evil against me, he says to his brothers. But God meant it for good. You sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. See the back and forth there. So God is able to work, and God does work through secondary causes to accomplish his good. He works through famines. He works through jealous brothers. He works through false imprisonment. Through it all, God was at work. He was the primary cause working through these secondary causes. His his good purpose is in the back of all the brothers' sinful actions and, and the calamity of the famine. Mysteriously, yes. Wonderfully, yes. Incomprehensibly. But you know, this all comes together in the death of Jesus the death of Jesus, which was the greatest evil ever perpetrated and yet also the greatest good ever accomplished. We're told about this in Acts 2 when Peter preaches at Pentecost. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Right? So in that, brothers and sisters, hear the, the evil purpose of men. You put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But also see the good purpose of God. To raise him from the dead, that was the purpose. Thereby freeing him from death and freeing you. So we receive as well, as well as Joseph's brothers, you and I are also receiving right now the comfort and assurance of forgiveness of God's purpose his good purpose, also of his help. Look with me at verse 21. So Joseph has already said some remarkable things in verse 19 and 20 about forgiveness and purpose. But he also adds this. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And we're told thus thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If you track with the history of this family up until this point, there's been a lot that's been going on. Starving, testing, reconciling, which is good, but still a lot. Transitioning into Egypt, now the death of their father. And after all that's gone on, Joseph's words here and his actions promise relief. A much-needed breather, you could say. Literally, we're told in the Hebrew, he spoke to their hearts. He spoke kindly. He spoke to their hearts. And that's a picture of God's kind providence to us. Not only does God forgive us, that's so essential, that's foundational, but God also gives us all things needed for body and soul. And so when we go through challenging seasons, times of refreshing will inevitably follow. Or God will speak to your heart. It's like... To use an image, it's like he provides oases along the way, right? You're in the desert and then you get an oasis. That's the way a good shepherd works. He leads you beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And so amid your doubt, beloved, God provides comfort and assurance of his forgiveness, his purposes, and his help for you. And as God provides for you, then he also enables you to be used by him as he provides 
for others. You can be a means of grace in that way. Finally, the Lord provides amid death. The chapter in the book ends with the death of Joseph. And amid death, we see that God provides. That the Lord, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with him through the valley of his own impending death. And what does he provide him with? The hope of life. We're told in verse 22, also in verse 26, that Joseph lived 110 years. Now, that number, 110, very interesting number. There are many Egyptians, many notable Egyptians who are recorded as living 110 years because that was the ideal amount of years. That was considered the desirable amount of years. It was symbolic of of a full life, of a life of blessing. And so Joseph also has that. He's had a full life. God has blessed him. But, but he has a fuller life yet to come. And he speaks to that in verses 24 and 25. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then he even makes them swear, the brothers, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Perhaps he has Genesis 15 in the back of his mind, right? You will be in this land, you will be sojourners, but I will bring you out. That was the promise. That's a promise to this family. Well, as we consider that, that is indeed what happened, right? 400 years later, the Israelites come up out of Egypt. At that time, they're mistreated and enslaved by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and who felt threatened by this large, growing body of people. And so Moses is going to approach that Pharaoh And he's going to make a request. Let us go into the wilderness that we may worship him. Sound just a little bit familiar? Parallels Joseph's request. This time the providence of God is going to be such that the Pharaoh disagrees. He hardens his heart and he refuses Moses. No, you can't go. What does Israel do? Well, they leave anyway in the end. Chariots coming after them, no longer going with them in support as they leave the country, but this time chasing after them in opposition. And God works through the evil of the Egyptian army to accomplish a great good, the salvation of his people through the Red Sea. And then they have to journey in the wilderness. Sojourners, just as Jacob had been. Death all around them. Struggling at times with the providence of God, complaining about their circumstances, pining for the things of Egypt. And yet always the hope of life before them, the promised land. And so what about us? Amid the reality of death, a very real reality, isn't it? Do you see the Lord's provision for you? Do you see the hope of life? It's there for you, brothers and sisters. It's there for you in Jesus. If you look at the end of chapter 26 here, We're told that Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. That word for coffin, the same word as ark. Think of ark. And so there are two arks present in the desert wanderings. You probably haven't thought of this before. There's two arks in the desert. One carrying the bones of a dead man. And others carrying tablets with the law of the living God. And in order for man to live, he needed to fulfill that law of God. And Jesus did so. 
So Jesus is God's greatest provision for us because Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And so from the very beginning, the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground and the bones of Jacob cried out to God from the grave and the blood of Jesus is God's answer to us from the cross. And so in Jesus, God has surely visited us. Do we see it? We are sojourners, you and I, like Israel. We're on a pilgrimage through a place that is not our forever home. And we have passed through the Red Sea, praise God, we have been saved. But the journey isn't always pleasant. Do we complain about our circumstances and seek something different? Do we secretly wish that we could just settle in Egypt and avoid the desert altogether? Well, the promised land was a nice dream, but it's only a dream. Well, if there's anything that the book of Genesis teaches us, brothers and sisters, it's hopefully it's that God is with us. That God is with us and that God directs his, our lives. This is what Noah found out. This is what we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and in Joseph and in Moses. And you know, all of these people are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and then And then the author goes on there. He says, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. And he goes on to speak of all these people and the things that they did and the challenges that they faced especially. And he says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. See, and that's the challenge for us too. As we journey through this life, we don't receive all that's been promised. And so we have to believe the Lord is my shepherd and he is with me. In the presence of my enemy, he does prepare a table. He anoints my head with oil and he makes my cup full. But the saints of old believed this. And so they lived in hope. No matter what came their way, they lived in hope. They didn't receive all that God had promised them, but they believed that he provides something. And that that something was something better. They believed in a better country, a heavenly homeland, a heavenly inheritance. God's provision of perfection for all of us, his people, forever. Do you believe this? That Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a glorious harvest that is coming, culminating in the new creation? See, that makes all the difference as to whether or not we have hope. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. You see, God will surely visit us. It's how the Bible ends, Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And to this we say, as the scripture says, amen, come Lord Jesus. 
And in the meantime, while we wait, we wait with hope, confessing, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And can you say amen to that? Let's stand if you're able to sing Psalm 23, the alternate version as it will be on the screen.